0: Welcome to this episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Vann of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. Today I'll be talking with Dr. Ann Lindsay about her new book, Reconsidering Interpretation of Heritage Sites, America in the 18th Century, out this year, 2020, with Rutledge. Dr. Lindsay is an associate professor of history at California State University of Sacramento. She earned her PhD in public history at the University of California, Riverside. And taught at the University of Central Florida before becoming my colleague at Sacramento State. Stingers up. Here in California, she runs the Cal- the Capitol Public History Program. In addition to being a scholar, she is a public history practitioner, focusing on historic preservation and heritage tourism. Professor Lindsay, and welcome to New Books in History.
1: Hi, hey Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So let me start by saying I really enjoyed this book. Uh, I got quite a bit out of it. And um, this was both in terms of the subject matter and especially the theoretical ideas. As you know, I'm from Hawaii. I specialize in 20th century Southeast Asia and a little bit in Europe. So I'm remarkably clueless about these East Coast Coast heritage sites that you talk about. And indeed, I I find the East Coast to be a very exotic and, and different place. Um, So I learned a fair amount about the history of this area and how to think about 18th century North America. But I also think that your larger critiques of these sites offer insights in how history and memory are tied to location. And you definitely suggest some ways in which this can be addressed in terms of heritage tourism. And that got me thinking about my current book projects on Southeast Asian museums and the Cold War and other things that I've done with colonial heritage sites in Southeast Asia. So I was really impressed with the book and it got me thinking about these ideas outside of the geographical location that you were, you were working on the temporal location you're working on. So that's fabulous. And I really appreciated that. But before we get into the book, um, please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a public historian and a specialist of 18th century America.
1: Um, Sure. I uh, came to public history in maybe a roundabout way. I didn't actually know what it was until um, after I'd finished my bachelor's degree, I got my bachelor's degree in history at Arizona state. And, uh, I think it was one of those students that loved to learn and wasn't done. It felt like I wasn't done um, when I finished my history degree. And so I took some extra classes post back and things that were exciting to me. And, uh, architectural history really became a passion for me. And I had a, a great advisor um, at Arizona State who sat down with me and, and listened to things I was excited about and passionate about and said, you know, you might want to look at historic preservation. You might want to look at public history. Um, and so I, I did, exp- I, you know, kind of looked around and it kind of brought everything together that I loved, which was, you know, a passion for community work and being able to make a difference in my community, but leveraging my history degree as well. Um, and so that's what led me into uh, my work in public history when I went into my PhD program. But to be honest, even younger than that, when I was a kid, my parents used to travel with us all the time. We lived in Florida. My grandparents lived in Ohio, so we were always on the road and uh, between the two states. And one thing that they liked to do was stop at historic sites on the trip because what else are you going to do with three kids who are tired of being in the car? So, um, and I think my parents loved history anyway. Um, so we stopped a lot at, um, you know, Biltmore state and, at um, uh, historic Salem in North Carolina and places like that. And, uh, you know, went up to Michigan a few times in Ohio and looked at some store, uh, or went up to Deerfield, um, and did some of the museums up there like the Henry Ford and, uh, and some of the museums in Ohio. And, I really loved that. And, um, as I got older, it became something that I continued to do and really loved. So it was not maybe surprising to my family that at some point, um, those things came together. I think they saw it before I did, but yeah, Mm -hmm. that was, it was very much a part of my life before it was part of my academic work.
0: And you, you mentioned that in the beginning of the book and it was in the introduction or the preface, but you, and I, I just love that image of the, uh, the portrait of the historian as a young girl uh, in the backseat of the uh, the family station wagon visiting Williamsburg again. <laughs> I think many listeners, and um, I'm going to say far too many academic historians, don't actually know what public history is. I, I will admit to that some years ago, and um, you've actually done a fantastic job of educating me on something I should have known about. So would you start by giving us a little primer? Uh, what is public history as a discipline, and what is it that you public historians do?
1: That's a great question. Um, public historians are all around you, <laughs> um, and even in the academy. Um, and that's, I think, something a lot of people don't realize is that many many public historians are both in, in academia and practitioners out in the field, and some of us are fluid within our careers and and do both. Um, at sometimes at the same time and some at different stages in our careers. Um, public history is a field of history where we use the skills of historians to create publicly engaged uh, scholarship and history. Um, so I would say public historians are historians who are working with the community to tell their stories um, and to tell those stories that are most relevant to communities, but at the same time, Um, we're not telling stories for communities. We are helping individuals by giving them the tools that they need to tell the stories that are most important to them. Um, And so I would say any characterization of public history that's sort of like we're telling the public what to think is not really the case. It's more of creating histories that represent larger swaths of the population and that bring to the fore local stories, personal stories that have a lot of relevance and meaning to people within communities. And that manifests itself in many ways. Um, It could be building an archive. It could be uh, new exhibits at museums. It could be creating heritage tourism interactions. It could be um, designating historic sites that have value um, to neighborhoods, to states, to regions. And so, you know, community as you'd like to define it. Um, So I think that it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. The skills of historians that we use are often the same. We're doing research in primary and secondary sources, just like many other historians, but uh, sometimes our research outcomes look different. And frequently we also have an interdisciplinary character as well. So I'm a preservationist by training That's my practitioner field. Uh, so that means that while I have history, I also have architectural history behind me and some planning and building knowledge and things like that. So, um, and I think any public historian that you talk to is going to be, t- be able to talk about those, um, interdisciplinary skill sets that they bring in to enhance their historical work, to make them more effective in their community.
0: Do you, you have a couple examples of, um, projects you've worked on, some, maybe some of your favorites
1: as a practitioner. yeah. Um, Uh, Probably my favorite project that I've worked on is um, the designation of uh, Norman Film Manufacturing Company in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, I worked with a team of three graduate students there to designate that site as a National Historic Landmark. It's the last silent film studio in the United States, still standing, and you can go see it in Jacksonville, Florida, if you'd like. Um, But it was a great opportunity to teach students about historic preservation while also really digging into the history of the site and telling a compelling story about the history of silent films, not only in the South, but in the nation generally.
0: So you worked with the graduate students to get federal approval of this as a historic site? Is that but you,
1: you we know. did. Um, we did all the research on the site. Um, we worked with the, uh, the nonprofit group that was administering the site um, and keeping it uh, whole for the city. Um, and they're hoping to turn it into a museum in the future. Uh, but we kind of dug into their archive there. We traveled to uh, the Black Film Archive in Indiana and uh, worked through the materials that they had there. We learned a lot about not only silent films, but race films, as this was a race film studio as well. Um, and sort of talked about those broader narratives of how how does this race film studio in the middle of the South operate, and who is their audience, and how do they cast themselves in this environment? What is the audience for race films? And so why does this place matter, really? Which is a lot of what historic preservationists do, is try to fit the landscape into the larger narrative and talk about why places matter, and think about in more concrete ways to why places matter to people.
0: And this all interplays with um, the professional field of cultural resource management? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, So as I said, I'm far from a specialist in the history of North America in the long 18th century, Uh, but I gained quite a bit from reading your book. Um, But I don't think I was your intended audience. I I don't know. Maybe I was, but who who was your intended audience with this book? Who did you want to reach out to?
1: I think I had a few intended audiences for this book, but I think one of the primary audiences was other public historians and public history practitioners, um, particularly those who were engaging with 18th century sites. Um, In a broader way, I'm very interested in part having a conversation about public history at 18th century sites. I think we spend too much time um, in the academic discourse of public history and dealing just with 21st and 20th century issues um, because those seem the most pressing, the most relevant, the most endangered. Um, And the most, uh, to have the most bearing on current issues. Um, And for me, we have to look at those older sites as well. Um, Those 18th century ideas that we're building. um, Those, those are very important to helping people understand the country that they inhabit today. Um, So we know that history doesn't exist in a vacuum. Uh, and so I would say that public historians have not been as proactive about taking a good look at the way that those sites are interpreting that history. And so I really wanted to uh, bring that to the fore um, in a more deliberate way. Um, and I also wanted to sort of touch with, ta- touch in with, te- with practitioners um, in the field and um, talk about what what people are taking away from 18th century sites. I think it's very important as a public historian to look at not only what you're um, educating the public in, but also how they're consuming it. Um, And I think the historiography of public history is usually pretty close to um, what's being followed at historic sites. I think there's a good connection between the academic and the practitioner there. But when we look at the historiography of colonial um, America, which is so, so much more robust uh, than it was in previous generations, um, that history is not being reflected in those sites. And so what is that disconnect? Why why is it that some parts of the historiography are showing up and others aren't? And then what is that loss? And how does that loss impact us? So I was hoping that we would get to have a, a deeper conversation and another look at how we're interpreting those sites and what the impact is.
0: Yeah, yeah. We'll get to this in a, in a few minutes, but just for example, you talk about the importance of Bringing in the new field of environmental history to these sites, which is seem to exist disconnected from that, or mm-hmm. Atlantic studies, or or global history. You know, what what putting that content that global context into some of these sites. I thought that was really really eye opening, and I appreciated that. Thanks. Um, so. You've touched on this, but what in you know what, what's your elevator pitch for the book's overall argument? What what is what is the the main point you're trying to make? I mean, I, I read it as a critique, a call to action. It also seems that you want to step in and give some marching orders at a few of these sites and how you'd want to do them. But what's what's your you know what's your again what's your elevator pitch for the argument of this book?
1: It's funny you say that because I think it's so difficult for any historian to go to a historic site that represents a period that they study, and not and not have ideas about ways that things might be different, right? Without thinking necessarily about the three-dimensional ways that sites work and have to work for multiple audiences at multiple times. Um, I would say the elevator pitch is, uh, this is a 10-year study of 18th century historic sites on the East Coast representing predominantly the British Atlantic um, and looking at what has changed over time um, and examining how we inhabit historic sites and how they are both connected and disconnected from our prevalent historiography, but also to think about the ways that popular memory is impacted by the interpretation at current historic sites. What do individuals take away from them? Because we know that um, there are individuals who get all of their history from historic sites after they leave school. That's it. They, They may not be picking up the most recent popular history, right? And so how is our national narrative then impacted by these visits to historic sites and what people take away from them? Um, and I think that that's very, very relevant and very necessary for us to consider.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and also Hamilton. We learned a lot from Hamilton.
1: Yes, absolutely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so um, the uh, the book uh, has a, a selection of heritage sites. Um, can you explain to us the the major sites you looked at and why you selected these sites?
1: Um, sure, that's a great question, too, because I mean, I get that question a lot. Why did you pick these places that you picked? Um, so I predominantly, if I have a time space field, it's eighteenth century British Atlantic. Um, and so I wanted to select historic sites that represented the four major regions of that eighteenth uh, century colonial period um, in North America. So I, for the South, I decided on South Carolina um, and in uh, the middle, um, I picked Pennsylvania, um, in the Chesapeake, I went with Virginia, um, and in New England, I stuck to Massachusetts and those were all colonies that were well-populated, relatively wealthy, and that had a good concentration of historic sites. Um, the historic sites that I selected in each place were historic sites that were either historic house museums or, um, you know, kind of prevalent sites of heritage tourism that were specifically interpreting the 18th century. So. Uh, earlier work, uh, things that were interpreting in the 17th century, especially in New England, I had to leave out, um, and 19th century sites I left out as well, um, unless it was an 18th century site doing sort of a long 18th century, like let's say Monticello, which goes deeply into the 19th century. Um, and so it's, it's actually a little harder to find in some places than others than you would assume to find a place that has decided to pick just that moment, that, that 18th century moment to talk about. Um, and so uh, in South Carolina, I selected historic house museums in historic Charleston, and then uh, plantation sites along the Ashley River Road. Um, in Virginia, we did Colonial Williamsburg and uh, some of the you know, sort of founding fathers of Virginia, Monticello, Mount Vernon, um, but also some historic house museums around Richmond in that area. In um, Pennsylvania, Independence National Historic Park is of course a really rich resource, um, but there are also sites in, uh, outside of the Philadelphia area that uh, were very helpful places like pensbury and then in massachusetts uh, predominantly boston and salem um, as they were important centers at the time Um, and of course um, the freedom trail uh, in boston has a lot of resources associated with it from that period because of the association with the revolutionary moment Um, and then in salem the maritime economy there um, was so prevalent that there was a lot to, to look at there as well so uh, I was able to sort of keep it within that 18th century area, but also, um, and also I should say, um, I tried to pick sites that were um, from many different types of ownership, federal um, or state-owned or run by families or run by trusts um, so that I could see if there was variance among those different groups as well.
0: Hmm. Who runs Colonial Williamsburg?
1: Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. It's a foundation? Mm-hmm. Is
0: it non-profit or for-profit? Yes. Or- Okay. Nonprofit. Okay. So um, rather than uh, going through each site in the book, you you organize the book into five thematic chapters and discuss the sites relevant to that chapter's theme. So let's, uh, let's go through the book and look at the chapters. Um, let's start with chapter one, which is interpreting the lived experience of individuals and families in the 18th century. What is your argument here in this chapter? <laughs>
1: I would say part of the larger argument of this work as a whole in particular is that we don't inhabit the places that we have people visit, that we don't give a lived experience of how individuals inhabited those spaces like I would inhabit a space, right? So when you go into a historic site, you're walking in as a modern person, but you're not getting a sense of how people live there. And so I really wanted to see how Individuals and families were interpreted at those sites um, as real people. And what I found was that the only real people in those sites, for the most part, were white men. Um, and I was, you know, in some ways not shocked. Um, but in others, disappointed, particularly because over a 10-year period, I didn't see a huge change in that. Um, I did see more African-American representation in um, a more challenging and three-dimensional representation of um, enslaved people. Um, and also free people of color within those sites and what their agency was. But children, women overall, and Native Americans in particular, um, and laboring classes, given almost no agency, they don't have, it's not just that they don't have a voice. Sometimes they don't even have a name. They're just people. Um, And they're so one-dimensional. And so if I was walking into that site and I was looking for something to feel a connection to, I couldn't feel it. And then once you lose that connection, what, are you, what is your ability then to teach? What is your ability then to connect and to, to bring people to greater understanding or to help them to connect with what you're trying to say to them if you've, if you've lost that? So um, in that first chapter, I really wanted to get to that idea of the peopling of places and how we connect to individuals by making those analogies to lived experience.
0: Mm. What um? What do you think were some of the, the more and well, actually less successful efforts at these sites of um, addressing the history of slavery and representing enslaved peoples and representing the African and the African-American tradition at these sites?
1: I think in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of steps forward. I mean, definitely not enough. Uh, most sites seem to be making an effort to uncover that history and they are talking about it in that way Uh, one thing that i found a lot was about uh, was that sites were starting to pull back the curtain a little bit and be a little bit honest about things they hadn't talked about in the past and to say we haven't talked about this before Um, and in some sites it was look we're tearing down these walls because we covered up the um, the places where the enslaved lived and that was a way for us to make this invisibility but we don't want that anymore and we want you to see that we're trying and, and you know just sort of letting the public know that they're trying to make these steps. Um, The interpretation of enslavement has changed so much uh, because when I first started this study 10 years ago or 12 years ago, um, you know, many enslaved people didn't have names or they weren't acknowledged um, what their role was, what the impact was that they made, not in that, just in that place, but in that region, but in history, that it wasn't there. Um, And there was also often a token person that you were supposed to, connect to like uh bristol the footman at colonial williamsburg is one example um but now 12 years later we see more sites that are um saying their names and talking about who they were and what they're doing and and i i saw um, an introductory film i believe at drayton hall in their new interpretive center that really made the point that um it It's so essential to talk about the contribution of African-Americans in South Carolina because they built South Carolina. They built the wealth. They built the traditions um, and that those traditions, if we're going to take pride in them, we need to take pride in the people who built them. Um, and so I enjoyed, um, at many of those sites, the work that they were doing to make the point in different ways uh, that this history is not the history that maybe you learned in your textbook in fourth grade. This is a new, a new horizon. So, and I think that there are many sites doing this in different ways. Monticello's new interpretation of Sally Hemings um, and the exhibits there, I think are very, uh, very compelling. Um, And then some sites that aren't in the book that are from slightly later periods are also in some of these 19th century sites are doing a better job in some ways than 18th century sites, because uh, I think most people expect to see slavery in a 19th century context they don't expect necessarily to talk about enslavement in an 18th century context for whatever reason what what, Um, what would that be um i think the association with the civil war and this like sort of antebellum period um i think that there's this blind spot to 18th century enslavement like they think it came later in the colonial period or something like First, enslaved people mm. came to North America well before, well before many of these colonies were even founded. I, mean, so I don't that's... know. I don't
0: know much about colonial America, but I <laughs> do know that. I
1: mean... Yeah. So I think guests don't expect it, and so when yeah, guests aren't yeah. expecting and they aren't asking, then it's not being answered in compelling ways. Yeah. Um, and I think more people have asked, and so more answers are prevalent. I will say that it is more possible to see compelling interpretation of enslaved people um, and the people of color that built America in the south um, in the north even though the same systems occurred it is largely invisible um, in many historic sites right. and that is not right. disappointing and, uh, and I'm not really sure what the goal of that is um, or maybe I, I am but I don't I, You know, let's not I, I don't see what the harm is of saying there were people of color in the revolution um, or, you know, this place was built by enslaved hands. I think that that is an important message, no matter what region you're in um, and hiding it serves no purpose.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, this is also fascinating to me because I've, I've actually never been on a plantation tour. And I was at a conference maybe 20 years ago in New Orleans and um, my partner and I had were debating whether to do a plantation tour or a swamp tour. And I assumed the plantation tours around there would all be about slavery like I thought that's what it would be I had no idea that it was just this romanticization of the architecture and the, the plantation life so um, I'm happy to hear that this is being integrated uh, into these in, into these I, uh, tours
1: it's I, I'll give you a perfect example yeah. of how things have changed yeah. um, I would say Middleton Place Plantation um, in Charleston South Carolina which is uh, on the cover actually of the book um is this perfect example of a site that's made a drastic change. And the thing that hit me the most is I went on their plantation tour many times, um, uh, in the period. And it was often the point and shoot tour, right? Like we point to something and say white man owned that and white man owned that. And there's a picture of a white man and no conversation about enslavement at all. The last time I went on a tour two years ago, there was a docent there who was making a point of in every room talking about the work of of enslaved people in that place and what that meant to the people that lived there. And my, I think my favorite example that this docent gave was she showed a soup tureen that had a, a crust on it. And she said, this is a Middleton soup tureen. Um, and she was like, but it's not really Middleton soup tureen because no Middleton's ever touched it. It was all, um, it was polished, filled and served by by the work of enslaved people at this site. Um, and that was such a moment, I think, for so many people to realize that the artifacts that they were looking were owned by the people that, that they claimed to have owned them, but not actually used by those people, and so that's also not only um, creating more transparency and you know, introducing people to a narrative that they need to hear. um, But it also inhabits that site, right? People are working in this place, they are doing things and, and she named their names. Here are the name, here's the name of the person that would have served that soup. Here's the name of the person that made that soup. Here's the name of the person that polished the silver. And those, that's such an important um, addition to a narrative that had omitted it for so many years. And that's just one of the many ways that um, Middleton Place has tried to not only make that a more visible history, but also to work with the descendants of enslaved people um, from that site to change the interpretation and change the
0: conversation. Yeah, yeah. That that passage about the soup terina, that was really, really um, powerful. And there's another um, another vignette you describe about your experience of showing up for a tour. And maybe it was at Middleton as well, but you showed up for a tour and you're waiting outside of the plantation building and um you're getting everyone's getting savaged by mosquitoes, and when the docent finally shows up, uh, some of the visitors start complaining about that, and then the docent says, "What? It,
1: oh, uh, yeah, it's say. it's at Hampton Plantation. Hampton Plantation, um, um, okay. Yeah, which is in the Francis Marion National Forest. It's also in
0: South Carolina, um, and in in, in, in Tidewater area. Very.
1: Yes, yeah, it's like, uh it's in a rice region um, on Wamba Creek, and the they keep it natural because it's a South Carolina State Park." And so they don't do a lot of mosquito abatement. So when you're out there in the in the summer, which you know, as as most historians would do a lot of our field work in the summer, um, you're going to get eaten alive. And yeah, the docent showed up, and people are whining about the mosquitoes, and they're like, "Hey, imagine all the people that didn't have relief. Imagine all the enslaved people out here working with no relief from the mosquitoes." And and uh, now tell me about your mosquitoes. And mm-hmm. and the and, and,
0: and yeah. the white slave owners weren't there at that time. That's right.
1: Yeah. yeah, they they made the point that you know the white South Carolinians were not living at that site. Um, in the high mosquito season, um, and the, the uh, population in South Carolina in the 18th century tended to move around a lot, um, because they felt that certain seasons were worse for disease, and so they would leave, um, or they would own so many plantations that they only lived at one, and the others were just maintained or managed. Um, and so they weren't there, they were moving around, but also, you know, this does made the great point that, you know, there's this story that African Americans are immune to diseases uh-huh. carried by mosquitoes, and she said, you know, that's just not true. So there's no way to escape it. There's no way to keep yourself well, and you have to keep working.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just thought that's such a powerful uh, mm-hmm. way of, of sh- really showing that lived experience. For Again, take it back to my part of the world, Southeast Asia. It made me think of um, uh, tourists complaining about the heat, the humidity, and the darkness, and the claustrophobia in the uh, the famous uh, tunnels of Kuchi outside of Saigon, which mm. you have be aware where the uh, national liberation front, the so-called Viet Cong had this incredible underground tunnels and, and underground bases. And they send tourists down there. Some of them overfed Americans like myself who can can't really fit in there. And it's, it's horrifying. It is, and it's miserable. And it's like, okay, think about that. Now think about trying to fight a war here for years. With And if you pop your head up, you can get shot or napalmed or something and it just completely changes uh the visitor's relationship to the site they're visiting, having that real tactile experience. Um so uh a little little more on this first chapter. Um what uh sort of uh same same question, different version, but um uh good and not so good examples of addressing the history of women in these uh in these sites.
1: History of women is such a challenging conversation to have because I felt in some ways, it's gotten worse. Um, and, um, and it's gotten
0: wor- during the it's, period you're observing it, yeah, it got worse. Yeah,
1: in the, in the 10 to 12 years that I was doing this, um, the, it really, I expected to find a lot more. I expected to find more women. I expected women to have names and to have lives beyond she bore children. And no, <laughs> not really. Um, for the most part, um, there were less... In the early part of this research, when I first started doing it, there were a number of sites that would have like a women's tour, like once a week. You had to be there on like Wednesday morning.
0: Once a week, not yeah. Once a, a day, week, once and some places,
1: yeah. Some places it was once a week. Some places it was once a day, um, and you had to be there at the specific time to hit this tour. And you know, we know our research schedules don't always line up with that. Um, so or, take... or
0: visitors, I mean, if
1: right? Yeah. Don't... So if you show up on the random day, you can hear about women. Um, and actually, um, 12 years later, you know, those tours were gone. But if those tours go, then, then I would hope to see a greater presence of women within those sites then, right? Like, we don't need them because we were talking about them in an active way. But that's right. not true. Um, women had a very specific function at most of the historic sites that I visited. Um, they were the wives of important men or the mothers of important men or the sisters of important men. Um, and, and so they sort of served to prop up heteronormative narratives and to reinforce legacies and things of that nature. What I did see more of, which I really enjoyed was women in the 20th century um, at the 18th century sites, Who were the ones who preserved the sites. And so women in the preservation movement were more prevalent, which was very exciting for me to hear about women who had come together and worked to save a site and done the work they needed to do, whether that was the MVLA at Mount Vernon, the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, or whether it was the Colonial Dames, or a woman who was very preservation minded and just refused to let this house go. Um, And so we still have it. And so those were great stories. And I loved seeing them and hearing them. And and it's sort of a call to action for, for modern people who are visiting these sites. But the women from the 18th century were many times not visible in three-dimensional ways. Um, so we didn't get a good sense of, you know, when her husband's gone to war, what is she doing? What does holding down the house mean? What does, what does it mean when the general knocks on the door? Like, you know, so some of these women are living through wartime. Um, some of them are living through difficult conditions. Some of them have moved, you know, across an ocean maybe more than once to inhabit a new life. And, and so in three-dimensional ways, we don't really get the story of who they are or what they care about or what their lives are like. Um, I think my favorite interpretation of women, and, I, and this is in the, the book as well, is the Betsy Ross house has in the basement, or it had a couple of years ago, a, um, an exhibit about washer women. And the lives of washerwomen in Philadelphia. And they had the names of the women and the work that they did and where they got the information. And their stories were printed on sheets that were hanging in the basement to dry. And that was such a powerful reminder that there were women of many classes living in the city and they were providing essential functions and here's how they lived their lives. And that was such a different and unexpected and really exciting um, moment to see. And then probably uh, a, free,
0: a combination of free and unfree laborers. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Both, both were included. So it was a really great uh, way to bring people, again, in a very relatable way. We do laundry. Mm-hmm. Who's doing laundry in the 18th century? Well, it's women and women in the lower class. And here's what they say about the work and what we know about them from the small little snippets that we hear about them that are left
0: behind. And uh, well, how about some other examples of bringing in working class history?
1: There's not a lot of examples of working class history, unfortunately. Um, And we know that there were great numbers of laboring classes in all the colonies. Um, You won't hear about it much um, in New England. Um, And in the South, um, you hear about enslavement, but indentured labor is not prevalent. Um, So almost no sites talk about indentured labor in the 18th century, but we know that indentured labor was uh, a major labor system that kept the economy moving. Um, I heard indentured labor discussed once in Virginia, um, in a, in what was already a very good tour about enslavement where they talked about the, the first wave of, uh, laborers at that site were indentured and what that indenture meant and things like that, which was very interesting. And they kind of juxtaposed it with the enslavement system and why one was preferred over the other. And, um, indentured labor and lower class laborers, um, and yeoman farmers were kind of taken out of colonial Williamsburg, which was also very frustrating um, because 10 years before they had been there. Um, So it it has shifted over time. So it's been, it's been very interesting over 10 years to see those shifts, but the, that, I think that's definitely a growth area is to spend more time. You know, we, how long ago did the social history turn happen and we're still struggling to talk about people at the bottom.
0: Right. Right. And this this is what you addressed uh, earlier, this disconnect between contemporary historiography and, and, these sites and better mm-hmm. better for the 19th century we prefer the 18th century so then um uh, to finish this out uh representations of native americans
1: uh representations of native americans are disappointing uh poor i don't know how else to to explain my disappointment um in some places it's gotten better um for example Colonial Williamsburg has done a lot of work um, and created a lot of connections with local Indian people to enhance Native American interpretation at the site, which 10 years ago was slowly beginning with um, having people from different groups walking through town um, as part of a series of interactions that showed uh, a moment in time where uh, some Indian people were taken hostage by the governor um, as surety on a treaty Um, But now there's an Indian encampment actually at the Battery where, or sorry, the Powder Magazine, where um, local Indian people are there to talk to visitors about what life was like in that period, what it was like in Colonial Williamsburg, what the pressures were, and to do some demonstrations. And I think that that's programming that they're hoping to expand. But in other places, they're almost entirely invisible. Uh, In some locations, they're just marauding or a threat. Um, that has no name. Sometimes they're just local Indians. Um, they're not given proper names. Um, in Pennsylvania, for example, places like James Logan's residence, uh, we know that Logan had a number of interactions with Indian people that were uh, focused on trade and some on dispossession, uh, but that is not mentioned. Only Indian art, there are artifacts from Native people um, in that house, but they're not interpreted. It depends on what docent you get on a particular day um, as far as whether or not they're going to talk about that. And it's usually a pretty rosy picture, like, oh Logan reached out to Indian people. He was amazing. Uh, but it that more challenging narrative is left aside, which is typical of Native American narratives generally, I would say, in historic sites, but in particular in the 18th century, um, when so much of the Native American and colonial relationship is being forged um, and the patterns that will be followed. Into the 20th century are being established that that's not discussed.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, and and no discussion of the, the history of settler colonialism. Yeah, no. largely just absent. Yeah. So I about I, that, but no, no. Yeah. <laughs> so, as a world historian who specializes in empire and has dabbled a bit in environmental history, I loved Chapter Two, 18th Century Interpretations of Environment and Global context at Historic Sites. So um, why should these sites be set in a global context? What, uh, Why?
1: Um, I think it's uh, American hubris to uh, take these 18th century sites and take them out of this global environment. And I think part of the revolutionary narrative is to talk about how we broke away. And it's almost like we broke away from the global narrative at that moment. Like we don't consider ourselves as part of it at that time. But... Uh, the American colonies are very much part of a global system and, uh, and it's not just a North American system, but the the Caribbean also is a very important part of that conversation. The Atlantic is an important part of that conversation. And then when we think about continental history and the interactions between the French empire and the Spanish empire and the English empire, all of these are playing out in North America and they're not being interpreted um, because a lot of the narratives are very local. Um, and they focus on sort of tropes, patriotic themes, um and these ideas that that america is just america they broke away they did their own thing but they wouldn't have even existed if they weren't part of a global system and a new america cannot survive without global connections um so whether you're talking about the pre-revolutionary or post-revolutionary period you cannot take it out of a global context Uh, just walking through a historic house you can see all the things that are impacted by a global economy Um, and so as we talk about ourselves as global citizens today i think it is a lot of meaning to think about the global citizens that people were in the 18th century, even if they might not have referred to themselves in that way, um, they were very much the product of a global economy.
0: Right. And just in terms of uh, the day-to-day history of material goods, I mean, Mm -hmm. you talk about uh, tea and porcelain and so forth, and this is all part of the, the, uh, the uh, colonial America's connection to the Asia trade and to China.
1: Oh, absolutely. and, I think uh, people connect those things to England, but not to where those goods got to England from um, or what those influences are from. Um, that fashion for blue and white porcelain, for example, and the tea trade and things of that nature, that the ceremonies of tea that develop in England are not the same as the ceremonies of tea in Asia, but they are still ceremonial. Um, the um, All of those influences on North America, I think there's this like, assumption that somehow they stopped being global at some point, like we broke away and then they stopped having English fashion. I don't know. There's still English people living in North America. They're still living very English lives, um, even though they are in North America. Um, and part of English life is, ha- is empire. And so you can't really, I mean, North America is part of empire from its very beginning. So it's, or at least from its colonial beginnings. And so I think to to erase that it takes so much away from us um, as we as we think about the challenges of that period even so if you want to make this a challenge narrative and what did they overcome and what you know what what is the great narrative how are you doing that without global narratives i'm not sure um so i think one major idea for me in that chapter is it makes so much more sense and so much more meaning for us to talk about colonial americans as they were um as people on the edge of empire who were interacting with Native American empires, with Spanish, English, um, and French empires, the Netherlands from time to time, and you know that they are active agents within that globalism and not just recipients.
0: Yeah, well, again, as a historian of, of imperialism, I yeah, yeah. <laughs> loved that section. But um, how about environmental history? Could you say a few words about that? How, how could environmental history be included in these sites? And, and what's to be gained from situating these sites in, uh, in an environmental historical context?
1: I think the environment is one of the most underserved pieces of these historic sites, because the environment that they're on, whether or not they're in an urban setting, or it's particularly the ones in a rural setting, uh, that environment that they're in is not really considered as part of the interpretation. And that's really disappointing. Uh, It's really just something that you see look out of the marsh. Isn't it pretty? Um, but why is this house on a marsh that matters? Uh, that, that had a lot to do with why they settled where they did and what their wealth level was and what the labor level was and, and how this all worked. I think it matters because maybe this, the preservationist in me sees, um, these sites as part of a larger landscape. Um, and that landscape really determined how that site functioned and operated. And, and we are people who appreciate environment as well as modern Americans. And um, as modern individuals touring these sites, you know, we look around and, and maybe we don't think in the same ways about why those trees mattered or why we might want frontage on a river or things like that. And I think that environment really matters. Um, and I, I think it's also, when I think of those sites, I think of them as cultural landscapes. You can't divorce the structure from the site. the the site has its own historic meaning, its own cultural meaning. And until we think of those as a system that operated together, we're only really getting part of the story. And that also encourages us to think about the importance of rivers and the importance of of trade on river systems. And it encourages us to think about what it means to be on the Atlantic, or what it means to be far from the Atlantic, um, and how all of those elements of the environment impact us. I mean, just as Maybe it's the, the native Floridian in me talking, but you know what a, What does it mean to be in hurricane season in the South in the 18th century? How do you make sense of that in your world? How do you explain it? Um, and how does it impact your crops? And how does it impact what you're going to do for next year? And if you're a laborer, how does it impact your work? So it's I think there are so many things that we have not even touched um, on in the colonial environment in North America that, that really we need to deal with. And some sites are doing a great job and encouraging us to to look out over the river and to think about how it was used and how it generated economic security and things of that nature. But others just want me to look at a pretty place. And I just think that that's a missed opportunity. That's so disappointing. And I've heard it said that in any group of tourists that comes to a historic site, only one of them actually wants to be there. Um, and the others <laughs> just got drug along, um, and, uh, and my students will attest that uh, oftentimes their significant others are the, the ones being dragged along. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> the more stories Wait, we have... You're describing my family. <laughs> <laughs> the more stories we have that appeal to people in different ways, the more they will find things to resonate with there and the more relevance those sites build for a greater number. And I think that that really is important to the sustainability of historic sites generally.
0: Yeah, in that section on environmental history, I really appreciated the way that you you pointed out that um, industrialized transportation has really sort of divorced us from an understanding of geography. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, industrialized land and and transportation in particular um, makes us forget about how important rivers are in throughout history, throughout world history, for transporting people, for transporting goods. And it's that proximity to the river that's so important. You you say now, you know, it, rivers are great for real estate values because they're beautiful views or maybe some recreational purposes. But this was how things got moved in, uh, in this time period. I, I thought that was just so insightful. And again, one of these sort of theoretical points you made that really transcends just uh, 18th century North American history. So I, mm-hmm. I really appreciated that. So uh, the third chapter, Breathing Life into Historic Museum Houses, identified what I don't like about most house museums. <laughs> and you talk about, quote, dead houses in this chapter. Uh, what is a dead house and um, what would you rather see?
1: Historic house museums have been my life for a long time. And I think that those are the places that my parents were taking me to when I was a kid. Um And I've been to so many, and I've heard so many people like you who are like, uh, historic house museums. Um, there has been a lot written on historic house museums. Um, when I say dead house, what I mean is a house that has lost its sense of purpose, um, that you can't actually envision people living in anymore. It's just lost its connection. Um, and so when I walk into a historic house museum and it just feels like a cold, Place devoid of humanity. It doesn't feel like anyone's home. It doesn't feel like anyone ever could have lived there in a realistic way. And those houses that are dead houses are places that are full of decorative arts and full of material culture and don't connect those to people. Um, Or they're full of paintings, and I'm supposed to be very interested in the painting or the person that's in the painting, but not how the person lived in this place. Like, I want to know who sat in front of the window, I want to know what it meant. to, to have a, a house on the street? Did it smell? Was there an alley? How do, how do I live and the, here? And
0: those paintings are such idealized. I mean, they're, they're, they're not a reflection of reality, right? I mean, these are, these are formal portraits, which are totally... Oh, yes. Totally made Completely up, right? Stylistic, so, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Um, they're they're definitely very stylistic, but they become these jumping off points, right? Because if you're a docent and you're giving a tour, you have these artifacts that become your jumping off points to talk about a narrative or to move you forward into another idea or another understanding or a biography or something like that, that you're trying to connect with guests. And we don't have photographs from that period, right? So having these paintings is the only way we're going to get a sense of what any of these people looked like. And for some individuals, they can't connect unless they see an image of a person. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that gives some life to them. But you know, in many of these residences, you just, there's no realistic idea of life. And I think once you walk into a house that feels dead, they're not going to revive it for you unless they work really hard. And I I think the, the one that hits me the most is the Dr. Physic house in Philadelphia because Physic had daughters and their father was a doctor in, in a city of doctors um, in a very densely populated place. And I can't, you know, what did it mean for them as daughters to be you know, sitting in a in a room talking, and then someone comes running down the road. Well, you probably are like, "What happened today? Someone's coming to get dad, right?" Or, you know, what does that sound like? What does it smell like? How is the rhythm of life different? How do we how do we feel it? And we don't feel life in those places. And I think that just is such an unfortunate thing because there's no way for me to make a personal connection to the history there if I can't envision life there. But once you say to me, you know, this is this is where so-and-so sat and they did this and we have their letters to talk about it. And how might you feel sitting in the same place? Well, then you're asking me to put myself in a historic moment and you're asking me to inhabit a person and to maybe express some empathy for what they were feeling and thinking. And I think that that has an impact on people. Um, And when we take that out of historic house museums or when it was never there to begin with, we do a disservice to the resource that we are attempting to not only save, but to create an appreciation for.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, the next chapter um, I also loved, uh, worked in urban history. So uh, this chapter is interpreting 18th century streets and gardens in the urban environment. And it made me think about some of the more successful uh, heritage tourism sites I've been to in Southeast Asia, such as Walking Street in Malacca, Malaysia, or Kota Tua in Jakarta, the old Dutch area in, uh, in China and Beijing, there's a few hutongs that have been preserved. And in Shanghai, there's some early 20th century uh, neighborhoods that have been, uh, rebuilt, not necessarily preserved, but rebuilt. Um, and I, those things I love, I love that sense of moving through the street and moving in and out of these structures. Um, so what's your take on historic streets? Um, what works, what doesn't, um,
1: I love historic streets. Going into historic urban centers, one of my favorite things to do, I think probably because I'm a preservationist. And so I love the character defining features and I love seeing the historic houses on a street. And, you know, sometimes I love the cobblestones, depends on what shoes I'm wearing. And, uh, you know, and the street trees and, you know, sort of putting yourself in that moment. I think that's one of the most realistic ways that we put ourselves into that period and feel that lived experience. Um, I think what works really well is encouraging people to think about that lived experience and encouraging people to think about, you know, before there were cars here, this was a noisy place for other reasons. This was a place that smelled a particular way. You know, we've seen some recent um, history projects that have talked about the sound of the 18th century and trying to reconstruct the smell of the 18th century, which I I don't actually want to smell. And... um, And the, you know, starting trying to think about those sensory experiences, right? And I think the streets have this great opportunity to create more sensory experience. Um, You know, what did it mean to walk down the street? What did it sound like? What did it feel like? And how does it help me interpret? And once I've put myself into that historic place, then when I walk into that historic house museum, I'm already on board, right? Like I'm already on the path. Um, I think there's too many places that have these historic streets that aren't doing much with them. They're not saying much about what I should be thinking or what I should be feeling. They're just sort of the path to the next place, but we're not interpreting them in three-dimensional ways. Um, my I think the only thing that I've seen that's really trying to interpret the street, there's like one sign in Independence National Historic Park in Philadelphia, which I think is such a missed opportunity um, because they, it's such a cluster of historic sites in, a, in an urban center. So there's this opportunity to make a real statement about the streets and why the street matters. Um, so there's one sign at in Independence National Historic Park, with a picture of people out in the street yelling up to somebody in a house talking about how the street becomes part of the living space. Um, And that's true. And especially, you know, we're very spoiled by air conditioning. But in a time before there was air conditioning, our houses had indoor and outdoor life. um, And we didn't stay inside when it was hot. Um, And so it makes a lot of sense to think about windows open, yelling at people in the hall, you know, it may not be civil but it's how life works. It's just realistic. Um, and you know, I think the other street that's really great also in Philadelphia is Elfrith's Alley, um, where they really have tried to talk about that alley and the function of the alley and how it operated for residents in the 18th century and the 19th century. And one of the beautiful things about that alley is that it's saved by the residents and they were really There's excited people, about it.
0: The, pe- the, the people that yeah, live there are live invested, there. invested in the preservation, right? Cause you said more about that. Cause I thought that was fabulous.
1: Yeah, the the Elfrost Alley organization is grassroots. It was a a community of neighbors who felt like they had a really important story to tell, and that their history really mattered, and that their houses were part of something really important. Um, And it's a a beautifully preserved alley, and you can go visit there. And they still operate at the neighbors, Um, and they have a small museum in one of the buildings. But other than that, yeah, you can still buy and sell it. There might even be rental property on that block but they've done everything they can to i mean when you turn that corner onto that street you are in a different time and that's a pretty amazing thing
0: yeah that's so cool that's great um finally you conclude with problematizing 18th century interpretations of homes of founders and in a year when statues of these old white slave owning men are being attacked um how should we treat visiting these houses uh why should we visit mount vernon to get fed a bunch of, you know, (laughs) great man in history narrative. Uh, Or Monticello, where we know the very problematic history of uh, Thomas Jefferson essentially raping uh, a woman that he owned, an enslaved woman. Um, Can you speak to these complicated issues of how these heritage sites should deal with these problematic aspects of the founding fathers?
1: One thing I always want to shy away from is... Pretending that I have all the answers to these questions <laughs> okay. because they're such complicated questions. Um, and I could write an entire book um, on these sites, these founding father sites. Um, and it's it's definitely the heaviest chapter in the work, um, and it's the longest for a reason because there's so much to say. Um, I think it's so important for these sites to problematize the founders that are there. Um, if we put them on a pedestal, we learn nothing. We don't move forward as a society. It doesn't encourage us to think in three-dimensional ways about the past. Um, and, you know, Jefferson and Washington and Adams and others, they, they knew that human beings were flawed and they built a government system with those flaws in mind. Um, so when we put these individuals up on a pedestal, we are acting in a way that they themselves would not necessarily have thought or discussed the past. Um, now, some will say well, you shouldn't tarnish these people because they founded the nation. But um, it's it's not a pantheon. We, we really do need to say, these things happened here and they were problematic and here's how they made this person. Here's how they built his wealth. Um, here's how they constructed his legacy. Um, and then think about what that really means for that person. So should we go there? Sure. I mean, it, I think it depends on why you're going. If you're going to have your... If you're, I think if you're going to any historic site to just have your ideas reinforced, it's time to open up a little bit um, and to be open to learning new things. If you're going to see some pretty gardens and a pretty house, that's there. Um, I think you have to acknowledge who built it, though, um, and who put it together. Um, so I think that a lot of these sites are challenging themselves to create these better narratives, and some of them are really succeeding um, in ways that they haven't in the last decade. So just in the last five years, we've seen a lot of changes in some of those sites to make them more three-dimensional. Not all are successful. Um, and it's it's very easy to paint, I think, some of the founders with a broad stroke and just say, well, but they founded. Yeah, well, they founded a lot of things. Um, and so, you know, yeah, they, there's a constitution and there's a government, but there's also, you know, like a really well entrenched racialized slave system. So let's, let's talk about all the things they founded if we're talking about them at once. Um, things I found disappointing are sort of the dumbing down of some of the narratives. Some of them have really been raised up to a higher level and asking people to ask complicated questions. And um, I mean, I was asked to do group work at Monticello and I loved it. Um, and, you know, we sat in a in a safe space and we talked about very difficult issues of race um, and we looked at primary sources and it was I mean, maybe I'm just a nerd, but I love that. Um, I think that's such a great way to <laughs> well, challenge you're, it. Right?
0: You're you're in good company here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. I suspect
0: like, that the listeners of this new books in history is a group of self-selected nerds, but.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it was an amazing experience and a real, mo- like you're not, you're not running away when you're in a yeah. small room in the basement surrounded like, by people yeah. having a hard conversation, but not everyone selects those experiences.
0: Right. Was that, that I'm sorry. Was that was, um, not part of the standard tour. That was no. uh, what? What was that at Monticello?
1: At Monticello, that was the Hemings family tour. Okay. Um, that is the the major problematic thing that I see is these sites are building really amazing things and um, really new ways to think about how to interact with sites. Um, They're taking you into spaces they don't usually take you into and they talk about people they don't usually talk about and they present you with facts that you've maybe not heard before, but you're going to pay extra for a lot of those experiences um, and they are self-selecting. So if I choose not to hear about that, I can have my completely reaffirming white man experience and no one's going to stop me. And and I find that problematic. I think you should be part of every tour, not just like mentioned on the side or said, you know, or or I'm going to give you 5 minutes on this but you should really take the other tour.
0: So it's every it's, every
1: it, tour should be the only tour.
0: So they're sort of ghettoized and, and, and yeah, in some see, ways it's like you know the, the 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 bad sort of stereotype of Black History Month being the only time mm-hmm. that we talk about black history what and when it really should be integrated into the entire curriculum. Right.
1: And there has been more integration, so I don't want to say that there hasn't. Mm-hmm. But those more complicated conversations, I think, that bring you to a greater understanding. Those have been, um, and I'm not saying that these aren't fantastic experiences because they are. But I don't think that an upcharge is the way to bring people to greater understanding.
0: Um, an upcharge, I mean, an extra an extra fee to right. do that tour, yeah,
1: that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so at, at the, at Mount Vernon and at Monticello, it's an additional tour, um, to learn more. So they'll, they'll let you learn something like they'll get there. There are tours, you know, there's some things mentioned on the main tour, not at Mount Vernon really, but, um, but at Monticello for sure. Um, and of course at Adams National Historic Park, the Adams didn't have anyone enslaved. So that's not part of the conversation there. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not really talking about the laboring classes. Um, so that's a whole other conversation. Um, but the. You know the fact that it's not. I mean, as soon as you say this is separate, you've made it less. Yeah, yeah. There's there's no changing that in the minds of the public, or you've made it unnecessary. You can learn everything you need to know from this one experience, and that is absolutely not true in most cases.
0: Yeah, or or allow the visitor intentionally or unintentionally to have a completely whitewashed great man in history narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and not have to not be faced with that. Um, so you 've been really generous with your time and um uh, i've just just got a few more questions for you um, Can you suggest if, uh two other books that you would recommend readers to read either either on public history or on um the time period that uh that this book covers? <laughs>
1: That's a hard question to answer. <laughs> this is we, the
0: podcast where we ask I mean, the hard question. I know.
1: I mean, mean, we've already identified that I'm a nerd, so there's many <laughs> books on my list. Um, before I get to books, I think yeah. that every historian and public historian should be reviewing the Inclusive Historian's Handbook mm.
0: which
1: is a joint operation of the American Association of State and Local History and the National Council on Public History, which is an equity and inclusivity-minded document um, which has many different sections that encourage us through case studies and through other interactions to think as historians in different ways, particularly when we are working in
0: public engagement. And where can uh, we find that?
1: You can find that on both the AASLH website and the NCPH website. So ncph.org will have the inclusive historians hand.
0: ncph.org. And uh, one more time, the, the, the full names of those organizations.
1: The American association for state and local history and the national council on public history.
0: Yeah, and the the National Council on Public History folks are really wonderful. You encouraged me to go to one of their events, and what a great group of scholars. I I adored them. They were so much fun.
1: Yeah, it's a wonderful community, and yeah. I'm definitely a better scholar today for the many people that I've met there and yeah. worked with there. Um, as far as books, yeah. um, I recommend um, Tia Miles' Tales from the Haunted South. Uh, which really explores the uh, dark tourism and ghost tour industry in uh, in the South and the ways that those interactions are built for a certain audience mm-hmm. um, and are built at the expense of African American historical actors who often appear in these tours but are appropriated in very particular ways to build a very specific memory of the civil war era um, and I think the other book I would suggest um, is a book that I mentioned um, in my own work, which is the anarchist guide to historic house museums.
0: I was very um, curious just cause of that title.
1: <laughs> it's a great title, um, Wagner and Ryan. Um, so it's, it's a great exploration through case studies of ways that historic house museums have sort of flipped the script on how you, interact with a site and if you're someone who loves historic house museums or you've been to many of them you may be very uncomfortable when you first read it because you're doing all kinds of things like putting in neon chandeliers and taking out all the furniture but it's a great way to rethink what we really want in historic house museums and how we really reach audiences which I think uh, I mean if if there's anything that I want to really emphasize in this work it's that we have to think about our audiences in really particular ways and how to reach them um, and meet them where they are.
0: Great. So finally, um, aside from transitioning all of our classes online for COVID uh, crisis, um, what are you working on now? And uh, what could we uh, possibly see from you in the future?
1: Well, I have a couple things I'm working on right now. Um, In my practitioner world, I'm finishing up the National Historic Landmark for Pond Farm Pottery in Guerneville, California, and uh, starting a, hopefully a rewrite of the Sutter Sport National Historic Landmark. Um, So that will be hopefully in the next year or so coming forward, Uh, maybe not at the national level, but definitely under peer review. Um, I'm working on an article on Salem, Massachusetts. Um, And that's something I've been researching for just as long as the other places in this book, but only the maritime elements ended up in my work. Um, But I'm very interested in the way that the witchcraft economy operates in Salem and what that means for historians um, and to history seekers.
0: Not just Halloween seekers, and by witchcraft uh, economy you mean the 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 trade in witchcraft tourism?
1: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Which is dark tourism. There's a level of occult there. There's some macabre, and I am just you know, fascinated and and disturbed. And so, if something if I've gone back this many times to explore it, there there must be something for me to write in there. And I'm, I'm also very interested in the progression of monuments to witchcraft in salem particularly the most recent monument to witchcraft in salem at what they believe is gallows hill when there were already two monuments to witchcraft in salem so that whole process of you know how do we decide to add another monument and how is that different and why aren't we telling people about it um is very interesting as tour buses are not allowed to go to that monument so there's a sort of a private monument, maybe. Um, so I'm very interested in that dynamic. Um, and then I have another article I'm working on on the urban environment in
0: Philadelphia and the way
1: that women inhabited that environment. In the
0: century. Ooh, great. Yeah, great. Well, fantastic. Anne Lindsay, Dr. Lindsay, thank you so much for your time and for your excellent book.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah.
0: So this has been a conversation with Dr. Ann Lindsay of Sacramento State University about her new book, Reconsidering Interpretation of Heritage Sites, America in the 18th Century. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.